0: Hello Great Women Artists Podcast listeners, it's Katie here and I have some very exciting news for you. I have written a book called The Story of Art Without Men. The book will be published by Penguin, is out on the 8th of September 2022 and is available to pre-order now. I have linked to the book in the show notes. Taking its name from Gombrich's story of art, which includes just one woman, this book aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. Beginning in the 1500s and ending with those defining the 2020s, this fully illustrated 500 plus page book is divided into five parts, pinpointing major shifts in art history. But in this series of the podcast, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jules who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection and vulnerability, which are hand-cast in London's Hatton Garden with recycled silver and gold. Founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time, each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. Today, I would love to tell you a little bit about their core pieces, the Leone Medallion. At the beginning of Dante's journey into the dark wood, he is confronted by... a terrifying lion, his head held high with a furious hunger, it seems as though the very air is trembling in fear of the wild beast. This encounter comes close to forcing Dante to turn away from the perilous journey. It is at this point that Virgil, his guide, appears to offer him counsel and companionship. When exploring Dante's hometown of Florence, Roche stumbled across an old Venetian coin in a market with an engraving of a lion, which he felt so clearly depicted to the one which Dante had described. Roche took this as inspiration and created her own medallion, which was worn around her neck as a secret message to herself, to be brave. The Leone medallion is worn as a symbol of strength and courage, and a reminder that you are not alone. Alighieri will be donating 20% of all sales of the Lion Club collection to Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal for the month of March, in support of families and communities in Ukraine and bordering countries who are in need of urgent supplies. You can visit this collection at www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the esteemed curator and art historian, Dr. Alexandra Munro. A pioneering authority on modern and contemporary Asian art and transnational art studies, Alexandra is both the Director, Curatorial Affairs at the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi and Senior Curator, Asian Art at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York City, where she has also led the museum's Asian Art Initiatives. Recognised for her pioneering scholarship on the likes of Yoyo Kusama, having staged a groundbreaking exhibition by the artists in the 1980s, Alexandra has also been hailed for bringing such historic avant-garde movements, such as the radical and experimental post-war movement Gutai, to international attention. She is the recipient of the Japan Foundation Award and the 2018 Commissioner for Cultural Affairs Award, both bestowed by the government of Japan in recognition of her contribution to Japanese art history. In 2017, she was the lead curator of the Guggenheim's exhibition, Art and China, after 1989. Theatre of the World, which was lauded as one of the most influential exhibitions of the decade. But the reason why we are very excitingly speaking with Alexandra today is because she is also a leading scholar in the field of one of the world's most groundbreaking artists, Yoko Ono, a visionary performance art and fluxus pioneer, whose extensive career has spanned from the 50s to the present day, who has fought for world peace and trailblazed both music and art in pieces that continue to raise vital questions about the world we live in today. Alexandra Monroe, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much Katie for that rambunctious introduction. I mean, thank you so much, Alexandra, for coming on the podcast. It's such an honour to interview you. So Yoko Ono is nothing short of an icon. 889. Her extensive career has seen her fight for global injustices and make protest part of her art. She works with her body, uses objects familiar to us, employs words that I find speak to us on such a universal level, an example being her instruction series, that open up the world in such illuminating ways. It's impossible not to see the world in an entirely new way. So I want to start by asking you, Alexandra, how do you feel when you are confronted by the work of Yoko Ono?
1: Well, of course, the brilliance of Yoko is that she has such an enormous and capacious variety of works, right? I mean, she makes word paintings, she does performances, she does billboards, she does experimental films. She is one of the greatest musicians and composers of any generation of the 20th and 21st centuries. So it is hard to distill a single encounter. She's also an artist who has spanned seven decades of art making and consistently is making art Again, in all these different mediums, she has no interest in hierarchy or division among the media in which she swims. She continues to make art that inspires us and that, I guess, essentially brings us to a state of wonderment. And Katie, in response to your questions, I'm just reminded of her seminal 1966 text. My theory on Yoko is that she's essentially a poet. And it's really words that shape her reality. And then it's those words that are a gift to us and a kind of transmission of mind.
0: I think "wonderment" is such a perfect word as well to describe her. I mean, some of my favourite of her works are her instruction works, her touch poems, one titled Touch Poem for a Group of People, which simply says, touch each other. Another is her earth piece, which reads, listen to the sound of the earth turning. And despite these works being so simple, they make us step back in such an incredible way and just reflect and just be in the world around us. It's these kind of simple acts. They are incredibly captivating, but also extremely meditative. What do you think are the
1: power of her words? Well, I think you've articulated, Katie, exactly what her art form is, which is this kind of very simple act. Act is the key word here. Art before Yoko, you could say, was all about depicting reality. It was a picture on a wall, or it was a tumultuous self-expression. But Yoko takes the act of art as something that is completed in the mind of the viewer, that is completed in the action of the spectator. And she makes art about connection, or again, what I said earlier, transmission.
0: I love this idea of art before Yoko. It's almost like kind of BC, but BY or something.
1: Basically, it's not a depiction of reality. It's reality itself. It's not a depiction or a symbol of experience. It's experience itself. That is a profound shift. And that is the shift of the avant-garde. I mean, really going back to Dada, you could say in the 20s and 30s, which also, by the way, was very active in Japan and is one of the legacies that Yoko inherits as an existentialist philosopher, avant-garde artist in Japan in the late 40s and 50s. Um, But uh, it is really Yoko who makes it her life, as you said earlier, her life fight to bring art into the realm of the everyday and into the realm of the mind. Yoko is about connection and Yoko is acting not outside of society, but in the muck and violence and terror and promise of society. Absolutely. And when did you first discover the work of Yoko Ono? Well, I've been thinking recently that uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, Yoko was part of the air we breathed. Yoko was part of the culture we followed. It was part of the music, part of the revolution, part of our time, essential to our time. My first professional encounter as a scholar and art historian with Yoko was in the 1980s when I had first moved to New York as a curator at the Japan Society. Yoko, she would come to many of the events at Japan Society Boondaku concerts, no presentations lectures by Issei Miyake. And we saw a lot of her in those days. It was her music video, Walking on Thin Ice, which by the way, she recorded the night that John was murdered in December, 1980. That really shaped me as a young woman in my twenties. That gave me a sense of terror and adventure and the stakes of being a woman in our age. But it was really, her 1989 show was a very small show at the Whitney that was really Yoko's comeback in the art world. She had always been very influential in the music world throughout the 70s and 80s, but her period of what some thought at the time was inactivity in the 80s directly after John's death was actually nothing but. She was beginning to work by the mid-80s on a whole series of new works that were bronze casts in the Reagan era of some of her earlier ephemeral works. And it was that series that really sparked my devotion to Yoko and which... Kind of made me her servant.
0: Oh, I love that idea. And how do you think she has changed your view on the world?
1: My retrospective that I organized with John Hendricks, uh, the curator who is. Worked with Yoko and great Fluxus scholar was titled Yes, Yoko Ono. No parentheses, Yes, Yoko Ono. That show was presented at Japan Society in 2000 and traveled to 13 venues in four countries. Incredible! Well over a million visitors. And why did we title that that retrospective? Yes, it was after the 1966 work that was installed at her Indica Gallery show, where it was a white ladder, a ladder that she had painted white, and the visitors were invited to walk up the ladder, take a magnifying glass that was hanging by a chain from the ceiling, and look up at a framed typescript page on the ceiling with three words in capital letters, Y-E-S. And that itself is an instruction. That itself is one of Yoko's reality-shifting instructions. And what it has meant to me is this idea that attitude is a cognitive choice. Attitude is an act of will, an act of mental will. And indeed, it was that yes that John Lennon saw at the show in 1966 and went up there. In London, right? Yeah, in London. And he later said, if that words that I saw through the magnifying glass had been something negative, smash the piano with a hammer, break the sculpture, boring negative (laughs) crap, he wrote, I would have had no interest. That yes John later said, made me stay. And I would say that yes has made me stay too.
0: Oh my goodness. She is such a trailblazer and just in every field. What's incredible about the yes is that it can apply to every single person, no matter if it's in the museum or gallery walls. She's shifted our attitude and just her approach to life is just so phenomenal. But I want to get into her work in a short while and sort of take us back. So Yoko Ono was born in 1933 in Tokyo. She was the eldest of three children. She was born to a banking family. Tell us about her childhood. Were the
1: arts ever present in her early life? Yoko had a really remarkable childhood. First of all, imagine growing up in the 1930s and 40s in Japan. On one hand, it was a period of the buildup of Japan's imperial war machine with a growing fascist and totalitarian government. She was somewhat shielded from that because she was really the heir to two families, two dynasties of extraordinary, noble and educational pedigree, and also fabulous wealth. Her mother was, you could say, what we call a morga of the time, a modern girl, very liberal, very open to the European and American literary trends, fashion trends, music trends, and also, interestingly enough, One of her parents was, in fact, a Protestant. So, on one hand, she was raised in a Protestant ethic that many Japanese who wanted to kind of be liberated from some of the strictures of traditional Japan chose in the Meiji and Taisho and early Showa periods. So it was a sign of um, an act of liberalization. It was kind of a will to choose to be somewhat open to Western influences of individualism, of expressionism. Her father was an aspiring pianist when he was forced to become a banker and really was very strict with Yoko on her own musical training. And it was this early exposure to rigorous Western training in piano and in voice that became the foundation for Yoko's extraordinary musical compositions and practice.
0: Incredible.
1: So she was already from an early age,
0: almost like a child prodigy in a way. Oh, I think she definitely
1: was. She was also <laughs> a child prodigy in her independence. Um, she was from a very early age, she says, already critical of certain customs of conformity that even among her parents who were highly independent, even in the context of Japan at the time, were not independent enough for Yoko.
0: Oh, my God. Amazing. But I mean, when she was 12, I mean, like you say, she grew up in the 30s and 40s, which was such a vastly developmental and politically tense time as well. I mean, she was about 12 at the time of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and as a result was forced to flee to a remote bunker with her family. I mean, how did the war affect Yoko Ono's family
1: and upbringing? Well, her father was away for most of the war, and for a year or two during the war, the family did not know where he was. And Yoko has spoken of and written about this longing for her father, this existential uncertainty that was defined by the culture of war and devastation and despondency in Japan increasingly in the 1940s, but also attenuated by this absence of her father. You have to remember that Yoko was also going back and forth to the United States. She was really raised bicultural and bilingual and binational. When she went back to Japan at one point and entered um, you know, junior high, I guess it was the Japanese students called her batakusai, meaning she smelled of butter, meaning that she was sort of not really one of them. I I almost feel that more than the war itself, the experience of the war, this experience of never being at home in Japan and never being fully at home in America as a child, that always being an outsider, always, as you said earlier, seeing the world from a distance and the ability to distill it and transmit it and twist it, I think really comes to define her practice and her attitude. But she also does speak about, um, it was actually not the atomic bombs, it was actually during the horrendous American firebombings of Tokyo that really built up in the spring of 1945 that her mother moved the family well out of Tokyo. And she talks about memories of she and her brother lying in a barn that had kind of an open roof to the sky and exchanging menus in the air of what they would eat if only there weren't such tough rations. And it's really those moments of dreaming as a means of survival that also come to really influence and shape her practice. And it's interesting that that early memory, she's looking at the sky and imagining the sky as this calling to a vast, pale freedom. And later on in her instruction paintings, you see over and over again these references to to nature, water and sky and air and uh, the kind of infinity that nature composes.
0: It's just incredible the kind of universality as well of her work. You know, it's interesting that you said she felt like she was always an outsider. And actually, in a way, what an incredible view on the world to kind of be a citizen of the universe and see so much of the world as an individual, because I think that's what her work does. It speaks to each and every single one of us on an individual level. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter where we're from. Everyone can be touched by Yoko Ono.
1: That is absolutely true. But I think we also have to appreciate the extraordinary pain and abuse and racism and sexism that she was subjected to throughout Her life as a child again. This, uh, you know, was sort of you know microaggression both in Japan and the United States. You could say that she was experiencing. But just imagine Katie landing in New York in the center of the avant-garde Manhattan in the late 1950s and early 60s. Fifteen years after World War II. Fifteen years after America had dropped the bombs on its mortal enemy, after America had been so poisoned by the most vile and vicious and racist propaganda in order to engender the will that it took to defeat Japan, you have to remember the Japanese war went on far longer than the war with its own allies, Italy or Germany. Months and months, the emperor of Japan kept the war going on. In fact, even after the atomic bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, the cabinet convened in Tokyo and said, how long do you think it's going to take for us to make a weapon of this power? Uh, But just imagine being a woman, a Japanese woman, and an avant-garde artist in the throes of chauvinist Imperialist American art world at that time. So you say, of course, that there's this ability to connect in this universality, but it came through Yoko's own. Extraordinary confidence and will, and again, this conviction of yes. It was not easy. There was tremendous pain, even within her own marriage, as we know. So, that outsider status was a way of survival for her. Absolutely.
0: And how did the transformative effect of the post-war American occupation of Japan actually then change Japanese culture at large? Because she was still living in Japan. At, am I right in thinking, you know, in 1951, age 18, she became the first female student to enroll at the Gachuin University's philosophy department. I mean, how did this change culture at large in Japan and how did it change Ono's life as well?
1: Well, again, the post-war period has many different seasons. I think Yoko was attuned to all of them. Most importantly, and perhaps most influentially, in the immediate post-war aftermath, Katie, there was a tremendous sense of euphoria. After years of totalitarian military rule with the American occupation, there was also Immediately in 1945, among all the uh, submerged leftists, many who had been in prison, many of whom had gone into hiding, many of whom had spent a decade in very oppressed and suppressed circumstances, really embraced the promise of America and Americanization and democracy, a true democracy. And with that Americanization early in the 1940s, Also came French influence of existentialism, came jazz, came lipstick, came prostitution, came Hollywood, came movies, came glamour, a whole wealth of world literature. And Yoko was, when she was at Gakushuin, which is the top elitist university in Japan, in the first class in the post-war period, and the first woman in that class, she was immediately exposed to this increasingly left-wing, liberal, very French-inflected philosophy. And I think it was that attention to language, that attention to words, that attention to revolution to radicalism, to promise, to individuality, to the power of the individual after the suppression of totalitarianism that really, I think, influenced Yoko. And she took that and really made it central to her practice and to her art moving forward. Then she moved back to New York in 1953. Her parents had moved to Scarsdale, she went to a Sarah Lawrence College, later she dropped out and moved to downtown Manhattan, and you could say the rest is history. So what happened
0: here? I mean, how did she get involved with the downtown NYC avant-garde scene? I mean, this was just the kind of the most exciting place on the planet. She made it the most exciting place.
1: Exactly, exactly. So uh, I said earlier, you know, she, she was um, very close to her family. She was very much shaped by the extraordinary riches, I mean cultural riches, that her family made possible. She was also very much shaped by this going back and forth between America and Japan. She was already one of a kind because of her life experience. But in 1955, she dropped out of Sarah Lawrence and eloped with the pianist and composer Toshi Ichiyanagi who was in America doing some studies and later was a student, actually, of John Cage. Wow! It was really her relationship with Toshi, or I could say Toshi's relationship with her, that uh, really led both of them into this early coterie of the downtown avant-garde around Duchamp, around John Cage, around Merce Cunningham, and eventually by the late 50s and early 60s, of course, around George Matunas and what would become the Fluxus movement
0: oh my goodness but I mean just before this as well I mean from December 1960 to June 1961 she was hosting these series of concerts in her loft at 112 Chambers Street I mean tell us about this time how are these performances radical
1: and who was attending them? Oh my god the whole world would be <laughs> um, so she you know you i mean 19 early 1960s new york city you had this explosion of neo dada assemblage, happenings, and of course, fluxes. There were anarcho-cultural sensibilities drawn from data, drawn from contemporary Western phenomenology coming from French thinkers, of course, a very strong thinking around existentialism and absurdity, all of it in the service of overthrowing what had been the devastation and the Fallout of Western rational progressive thought culminating in the Holocaust in Western Europe and the nuclear Holocaust in Japan. World War II was a humanitarian disaster. All of the promises of 20th century modernity had fallen into a state of abject ethical failure and the artists were the first on the trench first in the trenches to know that observe it and recognize they had to reinvent meaning from this humanitarian abyss and george Machunis in his fluxus manifesto writes famously we have to purge the world of Europanism, and so this interest in artists like Yoko, artists like Nam June Paik, artists like Toshi Ichiyanagi, were their their art, their thought, their practices were sought after, and were immediately by those in the avant garde brought into a kind of sacred sanctuary of where all of this foment was happening. And in Yoko's case, she was that sacred uh, sanctuary and her loft at... 112 Chambers was where it all happened, and this seven-month series really becomes the historic crucible for artists, musicians, dancers, and poets who were at the cutting edge of this new avant-garde of American art, and the real thing they were doing, it was all about breaking down the barriers between art and everyday life. It was around the same time as Alan Capro's happenings when radical new strategies and new media, including technology, were beginning to really challenge what was already by now considered the orthodoxy of abstract expressionism and the sort of high modernist painting.
0: I guess this is a time when, if the world that was completely rebuilding, the artistic language has had to be completely reinvented because it's as though how do you even comprehend? life and visualization after the devastation of world war ii you know the fact that they just reinvented everything and broke down all barriers between art object and viewer and everything became well especially with yoko it became about interaction as well i mean how did the Fluxus group kind of align to yoko ono i mean she was already ahead of the curve at this point i mean she'd already staged her first gallery show in 1961 what did she show here
1: Yoko and Fluxus are intertwined. I would not say that Yoko is defined by Fluxus. I would rather say Fluxus is defined by Yoko. And she was present at its creation both in Lower Manhattan and actually later in Tokyo too, where you had the beginnings of what would become Tokyo Fluxus, but Yoko, already at 112 Chamber Street Concert Series, was presenting a concept that a painting could be separated into two functions, instruction and realization. Okay. A radical idea. And already, this was aligning with Fluxus ideas that were developing around John Cage and around the Fluxus artist, George Brett, who... Purported that a score is the work of art. Like a musical score is played by another violinist, maybe a hundred years after you. Visual art, too, everything we've ever known about visual art, including a painting. What if that could be completed by a spectator? What if that could be completed in the mind of a viewer? This was the end of painting, and it was the beginning of conceptual art as we know it. And Yoko was the progenitor of that. And so at the concert series, she begins to experiment with these ideas where she is intoning an instruction of a painting to be seen in your mind, to be completed in your mind. And later she exhibits these objects in 1961 at Matunis's AG Gallery. And in them, she would have an object like a piece of canvas thrown on the floor and she would lead the viewers around and guide them with the instruction, in this case, painting to be stepped on. So the work was called painting to be stepped on and she would invite the viewer to step on the painting. And then later she shifts these in Tokyo in 1962, where she eliminates the object and she eliminates her own kind of performance of leading the viewer around, describing and intoning the title of the painting and asking people to enact that painting. She asked Toshi Ichinagi to write the instructions of painting to be imagined in your mind. I would argue this is the first instance of language art in the history of conceptual art. So that's what she was doing, Katie, pretty radical stuff for 1961 and two in New York and Tokyo. Absolutely. And then, I mean, in
0: 1964, she publishes Grapefruit, which has sort of been described as the monument of conceptual art. I mean, what was Grapefruit and how was this work groundbreaking?
1: Well, Grapefruit really was this anthology of what Yoko had been calling her event scores, And it became, again, a forum for what becomes conceptual art. And many of her most important instructions, like sunpiece, watch the sun until it becomes square. Scores for some of her, uh, what would later become films. So a number of works that would only become realized much later are first written down here. And they're magical. And they're radical. And they're light as air. And they are changing what anyone ever knew art could be. And reminding you, there was still a lot of stuff to fight against, a lot of chauvinism, a lot of market power. And we're still in the throes of the Cold War and the Vietnam War is heating up. Tokyo is about to have its Olympics and Yoko is there inventing a way to describe an art that exists in your mind.
0: Incredible. And then in 1964, she created one of the most groundbreaking pieces of art I think of the entire 20th century cut piece which was first performed in Kyoto and then New York and it cut piece speaks to so much but it's very much about for me questioning the power of trust and was one of the earliest works to invite audience participation it saw her kneel still and silent on a vast stage she was initially dressed in a black suit with a pair of scissors laid out in front of her and she invited the viewer to contribute to the work i mean tell us about cut piece How was it groundbreaking and how did it question human values, but also speak to the political era?
1: Cut piece is a (laughs) formidable and iconic (laughs) work of art. I don't even know where to begin. (laughs) I agree. I agree. We could do a whole podcast on cut piece. (laughs) We could do a whole podcast podcast on Cut Piece. And I believe you, I'm sure there are many dissertations that are just focused on this one work. Katie, you're right to focus on it. It has really gained iconic stature in the history of performance art, but also in the history of proto-feminism. It operates on so many levels. But I think what interests me most is the feminist dimension of it uh, because she is inviting the audience, primarily men, right? It was primarily men in all the cities where she performed this, who would come up and be the first to take this giant pair of scissors and cut her clothes off until she was virtually naked on the stage. And she is sitting, I think, significantly in a position of submission, the Japanese seiza position, which is with her knees folded underneath her. She does not speak. She does not wince. She is looking straight ahead. And her, again, stoicism and her invitation for the audience to observe its own violence, the terrorizing rape, really, of the gaze of the Japanese woman sitting on the stage kind of inviting this interaction. That aspect of it is what I think remains so relevant to us today. It's speaking about gender. It's speaking about racism. It's speaking about the male gaze. It has continuing urgent relevance, I think, for generations working today. And then just in the history of performance art, I mean, Carly Schneeman was maybe doing some work around this time. Kusama also It's right there at the cutting edge of women using their body in really transgressive ways to mark and display what it is to be a woman in society in the 1960s in uh, America, Europe and Japan.
0: I find it fascinating as well that she performed it around the world. But I mean, the 60s was such... I mean, a vital decade for art, of course, and the development of performance art and proto-feminist art and conceptual art. But it was also an era of incredible political tumult. And it was also a time when Yoko was fighting for world peace in 1966. Like you said earlier, she had met John Lennon, thanks to the Yes work in London. How did her work speak to the political era? And what did she do to incorporate
1: protest into her art? Right. Well, I mean, one of the things we we didn't talk about when we were speaking about the impact of war was, of course, it transformed Yoko into a complete anti-war activist from childhood, really. And in the immediate post-war period, you also had in Japan very deep left-wing movements that champion passivism. Part of the constitution of Japan that was ratified in 1945-1946 was the giving up of its own military. Um, Japan had to rescind its militarism in order to kind of accept the terms of defeat. And the majority of Japanese, and certainly the huge left-wing student movement and artists and intellectuals, also embraced that anti-militarist, anti-war, pacifist, peace Idea for Japan and and obviously for the world. And Yoko takes this on really, really seriously and it becomes not just a political belief, but it becomes the content and subject of her art. So even in her early film Bottoms, which she produces in London, she invites uh, uh, 365 different people to come to a film studio and they all have to drop their pants. And she (laughs) films in a cropped frame the bottoms, which she calls the funniest part of the human anatomy, and then stitches them together. And it is a peace film because she's showing how bottoms of all different human species are basically all the same. And we all have pretty silly asses. (laughs) Of course, it was considered pornography in London and it was banned (laughs) from um, being shown. But of course, she brings this consciousness and movement of social justice and movement of anti-war, which of course always had this undertone of racism too, to her marriage with John and to the Beddins for Peace that they do in 69 and the wars over billboard campaign that they do from 69 forward.
0: And, you know... He was obviously a a musical legend and incredibly famous. And it's so interesting, actually, even just watching, you know, I don't know if you've seen Get Back, the documentary about the Beatles recently. I love watching her in it because she was just absolutely formidable. And I think history has definitely underestimated her influence on him. And I'd love to ask you, how do you think she influenced John Lennon?
1: Well, I really can't speak to that. I think that's a question we have to ask for Yoko, I will say that John's art became more philosophical. It became certainly more engaged with world events. And John said of Yoko, she's the world's most famous unknown artist. And, you know, he got her. He understood everything we've been talking about today. He appreciated the power of her mind and appreciated the steeliness of her individual conviction. And I think that made his art better.
0: I agree. I agree.
1: And I mean, like you said
0: earlier, she was always creating in the 70s and 80s, uh, yet perhaps a little more under the radar. But I mean, this era saw her create work such as A Box of Smile and in the 1990s, her wish trees. I mean, tell us about the 1980s and 1990s and the work that she was creating then.
1: Well, Yoko has continued to create and some of her most recent work, including in music, continues to be extraordinarily influential among younger and younger generations. Going back to her her plastic Ono band for the, again, radicalness of of the use of her voice, of the use of instrumentation, of the use of beat, of the use of music, and what the purpose of music is in culture. So she's never stopped. Um, But (laughs) I think what changed is that more and more around the world gave her more and more opportunities for big installations like Wish Trees or big installations like Exit. In the wake of all the intifadas, she did a whole series of men, women, and child-shaped, sized coffins and the head of each coffin was open and a tree was growing out. Oh, wow. Wow. It was such a beautiful work that has been installed again in many different venues around the world, but always harkens back to this period of Israeli-Palestinian unrest and unjustness throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And I mean... Wish Trees
0: which is a work that she began in 1996 it sort of invites the viewer to write wishes on cards and tie them to branches of a tree and what is the power of this work and and how do you think this work speaks to the world in which we live today
1: Yeah. wish tree was first conceived in 1996. It references a tradition, a custom in Japan, really, which is at the Shinto shrines. You can go to the the priest there and pay a few yen and you get uh, a fortune and you tie it on a tree. And if you tie it on a tree and it might be about your examination or might be about your marriage or might be about prosperity, might be about getting pregnant, whatever... You know, you might be wishing that day, you tie this wish on a tree. It's a beautiful, beautiful custom in Japan, and it's ongoing till today. Yoko adapts that, but instead of having that wish be something that, you know, the priest in a printed divination gives you, you're asked to write your own wish. You're asked to divine your own future in an act of engagement to complete your will Complete your visualization, to use the power of your visualization. And what has been extraordinary as these wish trees have been installed around the world in all these different circumstances. We actually, the Guggenheim installed it in January, 2017 at Trump's inauguration, which of course we all dreaded. And so we put a wish tree outside. You can imagine what the wishes said. Um, (laughs) What the wishes have come to be because she allows you to read them and she collects them and she probably now has millions and millions of wishes that have been sent to her from all the different wish trees that have been installed, um, Katie, around the world. Oh my God, what people wish for. They're not wishing just to pass the exam, they're wishing for peace on earth.
0: Yeah. And I think a word that kept coming up when I was doing my research for this as well was the word generous. You know, she is a gift to this world, but her work has such generosity to it. It's so inclusive. You know, the wish tree, I mean, the fact that it can speak to everyone, it can be, yes, it's at the Guggenheim, but it could also be anywhere. And I love the idea that we all take a bit from Yoko and perhaps we'll put a wish on our tree in our garden or something. She kind of inspires us to do this. What do you think Yoko Ono's impact on the world at large is?
1: Well, I really think it is the power of wish. And it's the power of wishing and imagining collectively for peace. You know, she famously said, A dream we dream alone is just a dream. A dream we dream together is reality. And of course, that also connects to the song she co wrote with John, Imagine. I think her gift to us all is the power to imagine and the power to imagine good. Absolutely. And collectively as well, I
0: think is such a powerful thing. It's we're better together. And what has she taught you?
1: Love. I think this also, everything we're talking about, Katie, it really comes from love and her faith in love as a transformative agent to make things happen in the world. You wouldn't believe that amount of times I've been on a stage with Yoko in cities around the world with audience members hanging from the rafters (laughs) and seeking wisdom from her, having their lives changed, confessing to her, how her work, her language, her music, her performance, her yokoness has changed their lives. And it's love. She's taught me love. She's taught me the power of love on a planetary scale.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Alexandra Munro, thank you so much for this incredible insight into Yoko Ono. I think everyone is gonna go away with sort of not just BY before Yoko, but sort of BY listening to this podcast because it's been so revelationary. But as says the Great Women Artists Podcast, we do always ask our guests, would there be anything that you'd like to say to her?
1: Yoko, may I kiss you? Alexandra Munro,
0: thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Alexandra Monroe on Yoko Ono. What a fascinating insight into one of the world's most trailblazing artists. Thanks again also to my amazing sponsor, Alighieri Jewelry. Follow their journey on at Alighieri underscore jewellery to hear all about their latest collections and discover their magical talismans at www.alighieri.co.uk and don't forget to use the code T G w a at checkout for a 10 percent discount this episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smilenic, our research assistant was viva ruji and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far i would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us